0: Uh, some of the last words of the gospel of John said that you may believe that you may live. That's been our focus. Uh, we are in uh, part 35 uh, as we've been looking at the gospel of John, moving toward the cross, uh, Jesus on trial. Uh, we're going to look at the first half of this trial setting with him. You know, our study of the gospel of John, Jesus is now moving toward the cross his middle of the night arrest multiple trials peter's denials his crucifixion death and burial are are right in front of him now so Let's, let's place the cross uh, in front of us. Let's embrace the cross. You might have noticed uh, as you were coming in today, depending on where you walked in the building, that we have crosses everywhere. Uh, we have crosses in the corner of the foyer, all different places around the building. Even children made a bunch of crosses for us and we put them on the wall and there's one large cross uh, that's right here uh, in our sanctuary. We are thinking together about The cross and connecting with the cross of Christ and what he has done for us. Uh, We've been listening in these past few weeks to Jesus teaching us about what he's about, what he cares about, what's important to him, even what he is praying for, for us. We're going to continue to learn what's in his heart as we walk through these events of the last hours. Uh, Before his crucifixion. So beginning in John 18, we have the arrest, the trials, the crucifixion in 19, the burial and the resurrection of Jesus in John chapter 20. You know, the great thing about the cross and the resurrection and especially about it is that you don't have to wait as a believer to celebrate Easter just once a year. We celebrate Easter uh, every Sunday as we come together and celebrate that Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. And so as we walk through and look at what Jesus did for us in a lot of detail, uh, I hope that we will recognize what he is calling us to and how he is uh, challenging us. It's an incredible truth. And the goal over these next few weeks is that we look at it together. So we're gonna be focusing on the cross uh, this week, next week, and the, uh, the middle, the third week, we'll be doing uh, three different messages that will show Jesus moving toward the cross uh, on October the, the 20th. That will be cross day, and we will be focusing specifically on the crucifixion of Jesus. And then on October 27th, we're going to have Resurrection Day, not Easter. We're going to have Resurrection Day because we're going to look together at, at uh, John chapter 20 and celebrate together uh, the resurrection. John has been moving us from a very broad perspective to a very narrow one. Uh, we started this book looking at the first verse that said, In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Very broad. Uh, he spent time talking about uh things that happened in the life of Jesus. And then when we got to chapter twelve, I tell you that we were in the last week of Jesus. He started with the the Uh, entrance on Palm Sunday and we looked at that together and looking at the last week and now we are in the last hours uh, as we're coming toward his uh, death, crucifixion, as we look at the arrest and how that came about uh, in the life of Jesus. So as we look at these things, uh, let's think about what Jesus has to say to us, uh, recognizing that what we see here is man at his worst What the very worst that man can offer is what they took out on Jesus. But isn't it good news that it's countered by the very best that God can do. God takes the worst that we can do and he turns it in to the best that he could. Only God can do that. Only God is able to accomplish that. So we are looking together and seeking to embrace the cross as Jesus moves toward it. John 18 beginning with verse 1 and 2. Scripture says, When he had finished praying... Jesus left his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. Now remember John 17 we looked at last time was Jesus praying for himself and for his disciples and for us. And so now after he finished praying, he leaves his disciples and crosses over the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas who betrayed him knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So we have Jesus going to this place from the upper room where they've been now into the garden of Gethsemane. Uh, Jesus sets the scene for us. He does this every time. Uh, He shows us that this is not just something that happened in history or a story, it's it's giving us the story of what has happened in the life of Jesus. Um, Now he mentions several places here. He mentions the Kidron Valley. He mentions Gethsemane uh, and making their way there. Uh, So I want to give you some pictures uh, of that. Uh, So we'll uh, jump back and look at Jerusalem. Uh, This will be a modern day picture of Jerusalem. Uh, you'll see the Dome of the Rock in the background there, and then the city uh, there of Jerusalem in the background, how packed it is. If you look at the bottom of the picture there, there's a wall across there, uh, the East Wall. And on, as, you get, as you move from the East Wall down, there's this valley, and that is the beginning of the Kidron Valley. Now, how would Jesus have, have gotten there where there's some ancient steps? Uh, you'll see here, um, I walked down these steps a few years ago. These steps uh, show a pathway from an area near where the upper room would have been down these steps into this Kidron Valley where Jesus would have walked across to go to Gethsemane. Uh, If you look up from there, you'll see this next picture, and it shows you a place that is... Designated as Gethsemane. Uh, they built a church there. This is the church of all nations. And you look up and you see this church, but you see those trees all around that area, where those are those olive trees. And I have another picture that shows you them up close. Trees that are thousands of years old, and how um, that, 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 that's probably what it would have looked like, those trees in that garden at the time that Jesus uh, would have been there. So Jesus is headed to the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, he's walked down through the Kidron Valley and and, you know, one of the reasons that Gethsemane is so significant is Gethsemane means olive press. It's a place where olives would have been pressed and pressured so that the oil would come out of them. And this is a place where Jesus is pressured spiritually like no other time in his life. We know Luke tells us that, he, that while he was praying, he sweat drops of blood, how intense it was for him in the garden of Gethsemane. You know, this garden, gardens were something that people owned outside of the city. There were very few gardens like this in the city of Jerusalem. One was because they didn't have very much land. Second, they didn't allow fertilizer and all that so that nothing would grow in there. So people would purchase these pieces of uh, land outside and develop these gardens and would be a place where people could gather. It was kind of like a a park or somewhere where they could gather there. And Jesus gathered there often with his disciples. Somebody probably allowed them to be able to go there and to worship. We don't know who that was, but it's interesting that uh, God didn't tell us the name of all the people that were significant in the life of Jesus at that time. But they crossed the Kidron Valley and they make their way over into uh, Gethsemane. Now, as these trials begin to happen, Jesus begins to encounter different groups of people. The first group of people that he's going to encounter is the Roman army. Then he's going to encounter Annas, the, the... Uh, father-in-law of the high priest and Caiaphas the high priest. And next week we'll see his encounters with Pilate and um, these trials that come about there. Some of them are kind of official and some of them are unofficial as they are bringing about judgment on the life of Jesus. So John chapter 18, verse three, gives us this encounter with the Roman army. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas, the traitor, was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, he said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. So, the scene is set up for us. You can see it, can't you? This group of soldiers is coming with tortures, lanterns, and weapons. Uh, If if we can get that in our our mind, it's incredible that this group of people has come to arrest this one teacher. Jesus uh, has come to be arrested, and they sent a crowd uh, the word that's used there is detachment. Uh, detachment can mean a variety of things. It, it is typically used to describe a group of 600 soldiers. In, in times of war, the group could be bigger, or it could be as, as few as 200 in rare occasions. When you, so can you imagine... That they're in, they're in this garden, maybe the moon is shining, they've got a little bit of light, they're coming with torches and lanterns and they're coming with all their weapons to arrest Jesus and they send 200 to 600 people. Think about all of us, everybody in this room. Here you come with, with all of these weapons to, to arrest Jesus. I, I, don't, I don't know, did they think he was gonna run? The Bible tells us he didn't run, that he went out toward them. You know, I don't know what people do when they think they're going to get arrested, but I think most of the time they run, right? But he goes out toward them. He wasn't running, he is uh, the light of the world. And yet they felt like they, they had to go out and, and find him. They brought their, their swords, they brought all, all those things around him. Mean, and he asked them, who, who are you looking for? And he says, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Nazarene. And then he says, I am he. Three different things happen here as he encounters this Roman army. First of all, Jesus overpowers them. And how does he overpower them? He overpowers them with this phrase, I am he. Let's talk a little bit about that phrase first of all. he says, I am he. It carries you back to Exodus chapter three, where Moses is in the wilderness and he's standing before the burning bush and God is speaking to him through the burning bush. Maybe you remember that, that scene in scripture. Moses is being told that he is to go and re- have the people released from Pharaoh. And Moses says, okay, But who do I tell them sent me? What is your name? And God says, I am. It's the the idea of to be. He basically just says, tell them the one who always existed that he is the one that is sent. And I notice Jesus has been using this phrase. We've seen it all throughout John, where he would say, I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. All these these different times that he has spoken that. And now he is saying, I am he. This is a little different phrase than we've seen. Actually, if you look at it carefully in this, uh, it basically just says, I am, and doesn't have an article there. To, to make the sentence work, they said, I am he. You know, that's how we would do it. You know, none of us would say, I am. <laughs> like you were some hero hero or something. No, you say, I am, and you say your name. You put an object in there. You say, I am a person who works or does this. I am, and you fill in the blank. Or I am because of something. I, I exist because of this or that. You know, we, we would fill in an object. Jesus didn't fill in any object. He just embraced the divine name for himself. Uh, it's incredible. It's amazing uh, as he speaks and takes that uh, uh, for himself. Uh, he says, I am, and he recognizes he is the one that has no beginning and no end, and he speaks that. And he comes in this moment, and notice what happens. When he says, I am he, It overwhelms uh, these soldiers. They came to arrest him. Uh, Most of them probably didn't know what he looked like. You know, they're waiting, we learn in the other Gospels, for Judas to come along and offer a kiss on his cheek to define who he was and who it was that they were uh, going to be arrested. But this says before they even realized who he was, he says, I am he, and they drew back and fell to the ground. That's incredible. Huge army. After one man and he speaks this one word, I am he, and they all fall to the ground. You know, wouldn't it be interesting if that was all of us and the spirit of God came into this room and all of it, all we could do is just fall to our knees, just fall down on the ground because of the greatness and the goodness and the awesomeness of our God. You know, it's pretty clear that nobody can stand in the presence of God without just falling to your, falling to the ground. You know, we, we I, th- I think we have, we've been given a chance today to have the presence of God with us and he doesn't, you know, you, you would wonder why we just don't die when we get in the presence of God. But Christ made it possible for us to have worship opportunities and to worship him and to have the presence of God with us, not only with us, but in us without having to die. But one of these days when we all stand before him, I bet you we all, fall on our faces uh, before him as we worship the Lord God of the universe. So he comes and he overpowers them, um, recognizing that all of them fall uh, to the ground uh, when he spoke to them. Now, I don't think it was any kind of like weird Star Wars or whatever, and all of them are down on the ground. Uh, No, it was the power of his presence It was the power of his conviction. It was this recognition of who he was. It didn't have to be anything fancy. It was simply him saying and proclaiming who he was, and they fell down before him. He not only overwhelmed this army, he commands them, secondly. Jesus commanded uh, the army. He tells them what to do. He says, I want you to arrest me, but these other ones, these disciples, let them go. Um, that's a little strange, isn't it? They come to arrest Jesus, and Jesus is telling them what to do and giving them commands for them to follow, and they did it. They didn't arrest any of the other disciples because of the power of his command. He gave them an example. What would have happened if all of them had got arrested? They might have all been crucified, and what would have happened to, our, to the beginnings of the church? Had all of them been taken, but Jesus says, gives them an order, don't take any of them. I don't know what their plan was, but they took Jesus and didn't take any of the others. The third thing that happens here is that Jesus offers protection, even to the army. Simon Peter had a sword. Um, We don't know, uh, he must have had his sword kind of down under his tunic or out of sight. We don't know. We, we think from the gospels there were at least a couple of swords in the garden there. And uh, somebody had to do something, I guess is in Peter's mind. And he drew his sword. And most people think that he was aiming for the high priest servant's head, but he must have ducked and he ducked and chopped off his ear because Simon Peter was certainly not aiming for his ear. He cut off his ear. It's one of the little touches in this scripture that helps you understand the eyewitness account. If you read the scriptures, you'll notice that the Bible tells you little things here and there in the story that helps you realize that this was an eyewitness account. Because why would he mention somebody named Malchus? Everybody would have, would have known or could have checked on Malchus. Later on, you, you hear the scripture say that even Mal a relative of Malchus is mentioned later as asking Jesus a question around the fire when Peter, excuse me, asking Peter a question when he's around the fire in denial of him. Such an interesting thing. There's this... Um, Little play that's been written. It's not a scriptural thing. It's just taking the scripture story. And Malchus is the main character there. And one of the funny things in there is that Malchus asked Jesus, why did you put my name in there with my ear cut off? That's all people even know about us. Uh, I thought that was so interesting how they, to think about his mindset of that. But we are told that to help you realize that there's an eyewitness of what happened in this story as Jesus is encountering uh, these officials. And so he protects them. Uh, Luke tells us that not only did Jesus command Peter to put away his sword, but that he also picked up Malchus's ear and put it back on the servant's head and healed him in a moment like that. Would you have healed somebody in the group that was coming after you? So you see that Jesus is still revealing his compassion, his care, even realizing that he could love an enemy in this moment of compassion, to love his enemy enough to heal his ear. And it shows us who Jesus really is, even in his arrest, recognizing what he was doing. Now, Peter, Peter's trying to be courageous, but he ends up looking pretty foolish. Jesus healed, uh, and that sort of saves Peter's um, story there, and it didn't. Uh, he didn't want to be recorded as that, but I just wanted to ask you, I was thinking, have you ever, you ever chopped somebody's ear off in trying to do good for the Lord? <laughs> I think we all have. Trying to do what we thought was right, but in our zeal, doing the wrong thing, and getting out there and pushing out. Look what Jesus does, and he would have done this for anybody, I think, but he heals the servant. And he stops Peter, and not only does he make up for Peter's mistake, but right in the middle of that, he gives Peter a little instruction so that he won't lop off some other ears in the process. Jesus has a way of doing that, doesn't he? Because Jesus is helping us realize that there's a verdict to be had in even understanding this part of the story. And the verdict is, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is in charge. Jesus is in control when you look through this you you don't just look at this Historical story, but you realize that he's on trial in our life He's on trial am I going to decide what I'm going to allow him to do and what he wants for me every day We have to decide that even after I become a believer He's still on trial in my life as I make a daily decision to make him the Lord of my life He's in control. He's in first place some of the questions that come out of that is, number one, who, who do you look for, for power in your life, in your, in your daily life? Do you look around? At your own strength, do you look at somebody else's strength? Do you try to find power on the basis of money or significance or impact and on your life? It teaches us that our power is in the name of Jesus. The same name that made the whole army fall down is the power that has come to help all of us. Jesus is Lord. He's in charge. Secondly, who do you allow or what do you allow to command you? to command us. Um, that's a decision that we face every day. Sometimes we respond to the wrong commands, the commands of the world around us, the command of other people, the command of somebody else that's trying to guide us into to what we are to do. And sometimes we can just beat ourselves up because we follow the wrong commands. But we have one general, right? We have one Lord. We have one person overseeing in us. And praise God, he's willing to forgive us and give us clarity clarity. And direction for our life. He commands us. And thirdly, just as we saw him here, he offers protection. Where is your protection? Let it be from the Lord of Lords. You know, our protection is not just the locks or the security system that's going on around us in the world, but he's talking about how do we deal with God's protection on the inside where we struggle, who saves you from worry, who who works with you in your circumstances or in your losses. Jesus Christ wants to protect us from our fears and our struggles and our doubts. He offers us protection. He He wants us to let him be Lord, let him be in charge. I mentioned this Wednesday night. Uh, what if you were taking a little electronic device or some kind of product appliance to a person that, to get it fixed? So you have a toaster, or you have a microwave, and you know somebody's tried to fix it and they couldn't do it. We won't name any names on that, but you know they were they were trying to get it done. They couldn't get it fixed, so you take it to this repairman, and he's an expert in fixing this thing that you need fixed. So you take it to him, and what do you do? You tell him all that's happening with this product and what's going on, and then you have some choices. You can offer. To stay right there with him and to help him fix it. Or you could pull up a chair beside his workbench and ask him questions all the time while he's trying to fix this appliance of yours. Or you could get a sleeping bag and just decide you're gonna lay right there and watch him until it gets done. But what you would prove is that you misunderstand the relationship between the client and the repairman because what he wants you to do is to get out of there. Go home and he will call you when it's ready, right? That's how we do Jesus sometimes. He's the Lord. He's the one in charge. He's an expert in you. He's an, don't you like that? He's an expert in you. He knows your ways. He knows everything about, but what you do is that you bring your problem to him and then you say, I think I'll just stay and help you out because I have a way that I think this ought to work out and I'm going to kind of influence that or I'm going to sit here and ask you questions about why and what this happened Um, or you could just trust him to take care of it and he'll let you know when it's ready. He is the Lord. Even in his arrest, he demonstrates his lordship uh, for us. Now, uh, secondly, there's another connection here, a little part of the trial that's coming, and it's what the soldiers do with him once they arrest him. Verse 12, Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good for one man to die for the people. Down a little further. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world. Jesus replied, I have always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who have heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest? He demanded. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testifies to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth... Why did you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So Jesus is arrested, and they bring him to this man named Annas. Uh, Annas is the father-in-law of the current high priest, Uh, why would they bring him there? Because you ever know how, um, you know, Annas was the high priest and then he had some sons that took over after him and now he has a son-in-law that's there and so other people are supposedly in charge but the main man is still overseeing it even though he doesn't have the title anymore. You get that? Uh, It's kind of like this little political system that's going on. And one of the reasons that Annas was so powerful is that he helped to develop this uh, sacrificial system that was going on. Uh, You remember when Jesus went into the temple and he pushed down the tables and the money changers that were there because they were there selling sacrifices like lambs to the people to make sacrifice. And those people that were in charge there, they got to decide if, if what, what kind of lamb was really worthy of being a sacrifice. So, you know, yours wasn't any good. So you had to buy one from them. That was Annas's, uh, occup- that was what he got in charge. He got the money rolling, uh, in the temple. So because Jesus was putting down what was happening in the temple there, Annas did not like Jesus. Um, it was their income stream. And because he was kind of the power behind the power, Jesus was taken to him first. Um, so we, we recognize what is happening here. And what I want you to see is that so much of what happened here was so outside of their normal process. Uh, so the Jews had... Uh, Trials that they would have. The Romans had trials, but this wasn't a fair trial. First of all, the number of witnesses was not correct. Actually, they had no witnesses. They began to talk to Jesus right away. The witnesses that they did have could not agree. Ultimately, we see that happen uh, in, in this trial that they couldn't agree together about even what Jesus said or didn't say or what he did. The nature of the accusation was changed. They had a trial to accuse him of blasphemy, which means he, he claimed himself to be God. But when they went to the Roman officials, you know, they didn't say we accused him of blasphemy. They said, we accused him of treason. You know why they did that? The only way that Jesus could be killed and crucified on a cross was for the Romans to say that he could face the death penalty. Uh, A man that was arrested for a capital crime like this was not supposed to be arrested at night. And we already seen they came at night with torches and lanterns. Uh, If a man was arrested for a capital crime, no one who cooperated in the arrest could in any way be associated with the accused. You know, at the moment, all they have is Judas. Judas. And Judas was the very one that pointed him out, but he didn't have anybody else there. That's why Annas is asking him question. No Jewish trial could be held at night. A court was not immediately to pass judgment on a capital crime. They were to take at least one day, maybe two, to evaluate it and be careful about their response. Witnesses had to be called before the prisoner could be questioned, which they didn't do, and a prisoner couldn't could be asked no question which would, would incriminate him of a capital crime. So all those things are going on. Uh, what you notice in this scripture, this quick list of the laws that were broken, that Jesus knew exactly what was happening. He, he begins to respond to them. I have spoken openly, spoke, spoken in the temple. Why do, you, why do you question me? He basically is saying, you're breaking the law in the way that you're handling this, but basically I've been telling the truth all along. So again, get, he gets struck in the face by one of the officials, and he doesn't respond. Um, Basically, he does what he taught us to turn the other cheek. He slapped on the cheek. He literally turns the other cheek. He doesn't respond in anger. He doesn't slap back, Um, but neither does he say he's wrong. He doesn't back down. He offers a continued willingness to say, I have offered you the truth, uh, and he doesn't back down. So Annas in verse 24 realizes that Jesus is exactly right. And so Annas sends him still bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So we're going to see later on as they come to Pilate and as they come to the Sanhedrin uh, for this. What you notice in this scripture is that the more they talk and the more that happens is it seems like Jesus is innocent and they're guilty. Jesus is the innocent one. And they're the guilty ones. They're not even following their own uh, guidelines. So the verdict here is reminding us that Jesus is the innocent one. You know, God takes these unrighteous, unholy things that are happening, and he uses them by his power to get Jesus right where he wanted him to be, which was the cross at Calvary. That's the verdict in all this. It comes from these trials. Jesus is innocent. And the louder they shouted, the more accusations that they brought, the more twists and turns of the trials demonstrated that Jesus was the innocent one. Do you know that Jesus is on trial in your life and mine? I mean, you can look at these religious leaders and say, well, praise God, I'm not like that. But you better think again, right? how easily it is for us to be them. Because what's happening here is that they are trying to protect what they think is right. They were not really listening to Jesus. They were protecting the status quo. They were protecting their comfort. They were protecting their power. They were protecting their influence. And we all have dealt with that. I mean, why did these men, why did they reject Jesus as a lot of people reject Jesus. They didn't reject Jesus because they intellectually said, okay, let's think about what he's been saying here. Let's think about uh, who he is. Not a chance. You might think that they had a personal reason that um, maybe they somehow they had been hurt or something. Maybe they had been hurt by the church, you know, that, that something had happened that caused them to reject Jesus. But here's the main reason the main reason they rejected Christ. And the main reason we reject Christ is an unwillingness to change, to change. That's why we reject him. That's why even as believers sometimes we hold him off at an arm's distance that we, we know that he is wanting to bring change to us. You know, uh, in your prayers, don't, don't you love to say, here's what I'd like to see changed. We want change, we pray for change. We pray for them to act better, to have a better attitude, to be, to be changed in some way. But do you know he asks you the same question? He not only lets you ask, how, how can these things change? But he comes to you and says, how can we change that in your life? How can we change that attitude? How can we change that sinful need, that sinful situation that you have? Do you know I think God is always trying to bring about change in me. He's, he's, you know, he's all tapping me on the shoulder. You know, for me, he'd say something like, are you gonna preach about that or are you gonna talk to me about that? He's talking to you about it now. It, it wouldn't take but just a few seconds for you to think about what would God want to change in your life? What does he wanna make different? You gonna come in here and sing these songs and listen to this sermon, and take communion together, and then you're going to walk out and be the same as you came in here? He wants to bring about change. Amen? Are you with me? He, He wants to bring about change because change is what causes us to resist him. We know that this ought to be different in my life, and he's always talking to you about it. He never lets you off the hook because he wants to bring about change and transformation in every one of us. You can see that so clearly uh, through through this whole story. So uh, think about the change that he wants to bring in your life, the the sins that he wants to change, the attitudes, the choices, uh, all of us coming to a place of surrender uh, to him. That's what he desires. He's the Lord. He's the innocent son of God who has given himself for all of us. And he comes and says, will you surrender? Will you change? Will you allow me to be The Lord in your life. Finally, we see Jesus not not just with the officials and the the army and the religious courts, but Jesus before Peter. John eight some different scriptures in there tells us about uh, Jesus' interaction with the apostle Peter. Jesus went. Um, before Peter in the garden, we see Peter defending Jesus before the soldiers and the leaders. He was willing to take a sword and attack the army. He had his sword and somebody else, uh, hoping somebody else would come along with him. And Jesus says, that's not the way we're going to do it. In the courtyard, Peter denies Jesus before the servants and the slaves that are around him. We know that Peter denies him three times. What made the difference? What made the difference from the Garden of Gethsemane to now out around the fire? One is doubt. Doubt had come into his life that wasn't there before. He thought uh, when he leaped out in front of that army and tried to attack the servants that Jesus would do something with him, that maybe some lightning bolts would come down and there would be a, a battle. But that wasn't what Jesus had in mind. And Peter comes to a place of denial. He was not only dealing with doubt, but fear and even pride, fear and pride. Uh, He thought he would never let him down. He thought he would never deny him, but he came to the place where he did not put his trust completely in him. Jesus is helping us to see that as he's moving toward the cross, he's showing us who he is and he's asking us, will we embrace the cross? Will we embrace uh, the cross? Jesus embraced it. Jesus stepped down from his throne and came to us. Jesus took all the pain upon himself. Jesus stretched out his arms so he could reach you and cover your shame and the depth of your pain. His arms outstretched, his love poured out. He sees where you are and he gives of himself so freely. The nails in his hands, the revealing of his love, the scars, the blood, the cross, all of it given for you. So we're going to do a couple of things here. I encourage you to embrace the cross. Let it just captivate you as we look at it throughout this month together. So we start by taking communion together. Callie's going to come and serve our table. We have some ladies that are going to serve us today. Uh, So if you would come... As they get ready to serve the elements to us, um, let's bow and pray for these elements this morning. Jesus, thank you for how you responded when they were beginning to move you toward the cross. You showed that you are Lord, that you're in charge, and that you know all of us very well. Today we gather at this table. First of all, Lord, i just love to pray for someone in this sanctuary right now or watching online that has not given their life to you. That today they know that that's the real change that they need to bring, is to trust Christ, to quit trying to fix everything on their own, but to try to surrender their life to you. So today, Lord, I pray that you would welcome someone Welcome them home. Welcome them into your family. Help them embrace the cross. For all of us that have received you as Savior, today, Lord, we find our seat at your table. We pray that you would bless the bread, anoint it, Lord. Use it for your glory in our lives. Use the cup that represents your shed blood. And Lord, we pray that it wouldn't just be an an outward ritual, but that within us, we would embrace the cross. Be with us as we take this time of communion together, Lord. In Jesus' name, would you please serve us? One of the great songs that helps us embrace the cross, a favorite of many, has these words. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. So, I'll cherish the old rugged cross till my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. Embrace the cross. Sing this
1: with me. On a hill.
0: fourth verse. I'll let them get that on the screen. Uh, To the old rugged cross I will ever be true. Uh, So let's sing that together. Ready? To the old As a reminder of his death on the cross for you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Today, we recognize that Jesus Christ gave his life for us. And we recognize it wasn't just an external symbol that he gave us. He asked us to inside embrace the cross. Embrace the sacrifice. To love him and to love him and praise him for what he has done for us. Let's eat this bread in remembrance that Jesus Christ gave his life for every one of us. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this, is cup, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you drink this, eat this bread and drink this cup, You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. He says, do this and remember that Jesus Christ died for you and be very, very thankful. Jesus, we thank you for what you have done for us. And we seek today not to in any way take it for granted. We praise you, Lord. We love you, we worship you, and we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the forgiveness that you have offered to us. And we pray as we recognize you as the Lord of our life, we embrace the cross with you. We cling to it, and we love you. All praise in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen.